0: One lives in the hope of becoming a memory. One lives in the hope of becoming a memory. These words were spoken by Antonio Portia. Mr. Portia was an Argentinian poet. And if this statement is true then let me ask you a question tonight. How will you be remembered after you die? Asking that differently, what will you be remembered for? We're going to consider this tonight as we listen to the words of Scripture and also learn from the life of two other individuals and what they were remembered for. Tonight is an exceptional night for us because we really straddle in our calendar 2019 and 2020. And just like December 25th does not actually mark the historical date that our Savior was born, but rather is just preserved as a tradition about that time of year, so also do we often have a common tradition in our culture to think intentionally and meaningfully about how we have been living and how we intend to live in between one year to another. And pastorally, I want to leverage that interest and speak to that reality tonight by doing something a bit distinct and unique. Tonight, I want to do a biographical exposition as an elaboration of what Scripture speaks about because what we want to understand as Christians is that our life is often marked by the lives of others, and others' lives should be marked by ours as well. I mean, think about this. The the Christian life is one of both education and imitation, right? I mean, think of the Great Commission. Jesus said to make disciples, baptize them, and then he said, and then teach them to obey all that I commanded. Well, have you noticed the implication to that is that there are disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples, who are teaching other disciples. In other words, it takes a disciple to make a disciple. It takes a disciple to mature a disciple. No one is growing in their walk with Christ independent from other Christians. Jesus intends that to be a point of instruction, but not only instruction in the words learned, but also in the life lived. So, with that understanding in mind, a few opening more questions to consider, let me ask you this. Who disciples you? Who teaches you? Who models for you? Who are you watching? Who are you pursuing? Who are you asking questions of? Who are you spending time with so that you might learn the Word of Christ and the the ways of Christ? This is what Paul is talking about in that letter to the Corinthian church. By way of brief reference, he's writing to this church, a church, a very young church like ours. They have a number of problems in which he needs to address. He's speaking about their life being lived out for the glory of God and how they should be living accordingly. He says in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then he says these words, First Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, honestly, that could sound like a rather bold, if not bragging statement. Grow up and be like me? That would perhaps be true as an accusation against Paul if the rest of the statement was not included. The rest of the statement being, as I am of Christ. The goal was not to draw people into Paul's likeness, but into Christ's likeness. And this isn't unique to Paul. Later on, he's writing to another church, a church in Philippi. Church he loved and pastored for a while before he went out to plant more churches. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul did not think he held the, the corner of the market in spiritual maturity. He did not think that he was the only example to imitate. Sometimes people can think that way in the local church, right? Like, as if the pastor has the knowledge, the pastor has sort of the Christian life perfection, and all life should sort of funnel to the pastor, the source of counsel, the source of example. But that wasn't true at all. In In fact, Paul says in the church at Ephesus that part of the reason why God gives pastors to the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, the sort of great commissioning ministry, God gives gifts to all Christians to be building up and growing in the body of Christ. Seated right now around you are the very people God has provided for you for your growth in Christ. Well, like a boomerang that's, th- a boomerang that's thrown out and returns eventually back to its starting point, I want to do that tonight by starting now as I've just done from the Word and then throw out into church history to grab a hold of an example and then bring us back to the Word tonight. As I said a few minutes ago, it's a bit of a biographical exposition, a life to learn, and a life worth imitating, two lives in particular. And I do this for a couple reasons. Number one, because the power of story is profound and how it connects with people to illustrate the truth of God's word. And number two, because I want to continue to remind us that we are not alone throughout history of people living for the Lord. People who maybe spoke different languages than us, maybe from different backgrounds than us, but had the same goal, read from the same Bible, and had the same intention to honor Christ. Well, tonight we come together to learn specifically about one man and one woman who were married to one another, and we want to learn about this man and his wife and their 11 children that they had. A study was, do- was done about this couple and their legacy. And uh, by comparison to another family who also had a rather large family, and it compared the legacy of these two families. And the one I'm speaking about tonight, they traced out their family tree up until the year 1900s. So before then, from the 1700s to the 1900s, and a study was done about their 1,400 descendants, their kids, their grandkids, their great great grandkids, all the cousins, and the. Owl, as it continued to spawn out from there. Here's what they found from this family of this man and this woman that they would have in their family history to follow them 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of a law school, 30 judges. 66 doctors and a dean of a medical school, 80 positions in public office, which includes three senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, one vice president of the United States, one controller of the U.S. Treasury, and over 100 missionaries. One historian has asked the question, has any other mother, speaking about the woman, contributed more vitally to the leadership of a nation than this woman? Who is this man that I speak of? Who is this woman that I speak of? Tonight, I want to speak to you briefly about the life of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. In the words of Jonathan Edwards in a letter to his wife, while on his deathbed, they shared what he called a, quote-unquote, uncommon union. And tonight, I hope to challenge all of us who are Christians individually and collectively, especially even those who are married, thinking together as families to see what God can do with lives committed to the Lord as revealed in His Word. Now, let's go back. Let's grab the remote control on life, and let's rewind the clock all the way back to the year 1716. A usually tall, skinny 13-year-old starts his college at the age of 13 At that time known as Yale College, later be known as Yale University. This young man who was also a pastor's kid, it was him and his 10 sisters. That's a lot of girls in the house. He finishes his bachelor's degree in four years, so he's 17 years of age, and then at the top of his class, and he goes on to stay for his master's degree, finishing that two years later. And at the age of 19 years of age, as a single guy, he goes to become a pastor at a church in New York City. So he's 19, and he is accepting his first pastor in New York City. What were you doing at 19? I know I was not pastoring a church in New York City. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of a church that had split off from another church and had done so for about a year. And he worked during that year of his pastoring to reconcile these two groups back together, knowing that if he reconciled these two groups back together, he'd be out of a job. He didn't care. He wanted the reputation of Christ to be honored in that community. So after he does that, he goes back to Yale to study. When he returns back to Yale, he met a young woman that honestly caught his eye. And he would write about her and think about her. Her name was Sarah. Now, there was seven years difference between Sarah and Jonathan. She was 13 and he was 20. Now, today you might think, well, that makes him a creeper. That would make concerning. But you have to understand, by that time, at that time in our country, uh, young women commonly were married by the age of 16. So her being interested in possibly being married to this man would not have been unthinkable. And he was interested in her. But the idea of these two people coming together was the furthest thing from many people's mind. This was no no eHarmony.com matchup of a couple that, oh, I could just see that coming a mile away. They were completely different in many respects. Sarah was from one of the most well-known families in all of Connecticut, even though her, her father was a pastor himself. She had the best education a woman at that time could receive. She was polished and socially refined. She was younger Excuse me. when she was younger, she was taught how to practice good posture by having a book balanced on her head that she'd have to walk around and practice standing and sitting without losing that book to teach her to sit up straight, which I imagine a lot of us, including myself, could probably use that lesson today. Then there was Jonathan. Jonathan was introverted and shy, whereas Sarah was known as being beautiful and able to put others at ease in her conversation, Jonathan wasn't a head-turning guy. He was awkward in conversations. He didn't drink alcohol, which would be uncommon at that time. He ate very little food. He was tall and incredibly thin, and he was awkward in public. He would describe himself later as being needing to grow as a gentleman. He didn't really kind of have the, the social maturity to how to engage with him. He wouldn't be the person you put in charge of hospitality on behalf of the local church. But there were some similarities. They both loved music, and they enjoyed riding horses together. That was a love of theirs. And they were both pastor's kids. Finally, after dating and being in a courtship relationship for a number of years, on July 28, 1727, they were married. By then, she was 17, and he was 24. He wore at their wedding a powdered wig and a new outfit that his sister bought him. And she, unlike today's tradition of wearing a white dress, she wore a satin green dress. And they went off together to where he would become a pastor next, leaving Yale. He went to pastor a church that was a famous church. The town was called Northampton. This church was pastored by Jonathan's grandfather. His grandfather was arguably the most famous pastor in all the land at that time. He's 85 years old and he hires his grandson to come replace him. Now, Jonathan is 24 years old. His grandfather's 85 years old. His grandfather is like legendary, the most famous guy, and he hires his grandson and says, Hey, you're gonna take Sunday night service, you preach out for a year, and then I'm gonna turn the church over to you. Now just put this in comparison today. Grab a hold of a famous preacher. Think of somebody like a, a John MacArthur. Who takes a 24 year old and says, Hey, you're gonna be my replacement. You're gonna preach Sunday nights for about a year, and then you're up. You get in charge of the whole church. That would make you scared to death, quite honestly. And yet, he took it. He took it. Even though he disagreed with some of the views of his grandfather, which would come out later in his ministry. Now, here's a challenge this 24 year old newly married man with his wife was gonna have challenges. I want you to understand what it's like for a new bride to come in. When a new bride came to church the first Sunday after she got married, you know what she was asked to do? She was told to wear her wedding dress to church. awkward as that sounds to you women. And she was to come into the center aisle, and she was to turn around so everybody could see her in her dress. And she had the responsibility to pick the passage that the pastor would preach on that Sunday for that one Sunday. But because she was the pastor's wife, she was expected every Sunday, not to wear the dress, but to sit up on a seat up front here that faced everybody else over to the side while her husband preached. And everybody would stare at this young woman. She was expected to not move at all, not distract anybody. Sometimes, even now, as I'm sitting there, as you're sitting there listening to me, you move a little bit, you fidget, no big deal, it's in your chair, you get distracted, you're grabbing your phone, you see what happened with the sports scores, whatever it is you're doing, right? Sarah's not doing that. She has to sit perfectly still. It's a lot of pressure for a young bride who's 17 years old sitting there with this expectation. Not allowed to move, yawn, get restless in her seat, fold her feet, anything. And yet the Lord blessed their ministry. And this is due in largely in part to their godly character, both Jonathan and Sarah. Now, one year before this time, when Jonathan was 19, before he was married, when he went to be a pastor in New York City, he was concerned about living on his own and what it would be like. And so he penned what's been known as the Resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Time doesn't permit me to go through all these resolutions, but they are profound in and of themselves. They're even more profound to think of a 19-year-old who wrote these. That he wrote these with the intention that he would commit his life to live by them, and here's the kicker. He did. And let's be honest, you and I have a hard time like keeping like, one resolution for like a month. He wrote 70 of them at age 19 to be able to measure his life by. I want to give you some examples of what these were like. Resolution number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 10, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Number 14, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. That's just hard driving in traffic in Miami. Number 37, resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent what sin I have committed and wherein I have denied myself also at the end of every week, month, and year. Number 40, resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to Eating and drinking. Number 70, let there be something of benevolence, in other words, kindness, in all that I speak. This was Jonathan Edwards at age 19 before he even got married. And this is what he invited his wife to come and be a part of life with him. This mature commitment did not change for Jonathan. He was a man that loved God, feared God, studied hard His Word. As a pastor, he was often known for being in his study up to 13 hours a day, either studying for the Sunday sermon, studying for other times he would teach, or meeting with people who wanted to come see their pastor for counsel and to speak into their life. And this was the expectation for Jonathan as a pastor. Sarah was no less in love with her Savior, Jesus Christ. She and Jonathan would stay up late at night talking about the Lord. After the kids were in bed, she would talk with Jonathan about the sermons he had preached and wanted to discuss them further with him. She would talk about the children and how they would want to interact with each of their children, how each of their children were doing, as well as the people's needs in the church. From the very beginning of the marriage, Sarah conducted herself as a wife, then a hostess, then a mother, and a counselor as a woman who feared the Lord and desired to obey His Word in every area of life. God was kind to them. He gave them 11 children. Now, in today's thoughts, you might think, 11 doesn't sound kind. (laughs) But it is. Children are a blessing. But here's why it's particularly kind. Because all of their children lived except one daughter who died in her teenage years. At that time in the 1700s, you basically had a 50% chance of your kid living. So if you wanted two kids, you'd have to have four to have two kids live and survive. Out of their 11 kids, they had all 10 through all, all of their adult life and only one died in her teenage years. Now being a wife in a home of a man that is committed to the ministry is very difficult. You will not have a lot of money You will host people all the time. Your husband will travel quite a bit to minister to other people in other places. All the while, people will complain about your husband, about the sermon he preached, the sermon he should have preached, the sermon the way he should have preached it. They'll complain about your hair, about your dress. While they don't particularly live out themselves very devoted lives, to live godly lives themselves. And yet, Sarah handled all of that while raising 11 children. Pastors also in training would come live with Sarah and Jonathan and the kids for months at a time to be trained by her husband. Perhaps some of you already know this about Jonathan Edwards, but he is known as the most famous theologian in American history who's preached the most famous sermon in American history. I have referenced it a couple months ago here at Grace Church titled The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What you might not know, though, is that he first preached that sermon at his own church with basically no effect, no response. Later, he was visiting another church, intending to not preach, but to just attend the church and be preached at. But he was called upon to preach, and so he preached his sermon notes that he had in his saddlebag, which was that sermon. And he read the sermon to the people. But God used it in such a miraculous way and radically moved as the Holy Spirit did in the people's hearts that some people even ran around the room while he was preaching and were weeping for fear that God was going to kill them right then and there. And that they were going to go to hell as people who had never put their faith in Christ alone. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. That must be amazing to see. That's the ministry that he was a part of. But he never intended that. That was just how God chose to bless. Now, here's how it's all amazing the guy who helped start a revival in the United States, the guy who unbelievably ministered to dozens of pastors, training them up, and spoke to amazing amounts of people how did it all end? How did Jonathan's ministry at that church end? 24 years later, he was fired. You know why? Because he disagreed with his grandfather. He disagreed in this idea. That he believed that the Bible did not allow people who are not Christians to take the Lord's Supper. His grandfather believed that non-Christians could take the Lord's Supper, and as long as they weren't knowingly living in any known immorality, Jonathan said, no, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. And his church was so offended by Jonathan teaching from the Bible on this that it got to the point where they fired him. 24 years, an amazing ministry, an amazing man, an amazing marriage with an amazing wife, and they fire him. So what does he do? Where does he go? What job does he take? He and his wife and his kids go to Stockbridge, Massachusetts to be a missionary to 250 Indians and some English families there. That's where he goes. From pastoring the most famous church to being seemingly the most famous ministry to going to be a missionary to the Indians. It's while there that he gets offered the job to come back to Yale University and be the president of Yale He leaves his wife in January to take the job for her to come later in March after she sells the house and moves the kids in the spring. And in March, while he's away from his wife, he takes a smallpox vaccination and he dies from it two weeks later. Away from his wife. He said to one of his daughters on his deathbed the following about his wife. Quote, It seems to me to be the will of God, that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union, which has so long subsisted between us, has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trail and submit cheerfully to the will of God." In March 22, 1758, at the age of 55 years old, Jonathan Edwards breathed his last breath and died. Sarah, his wife, learned of this news of her husband's death in her absence. And she wrote to her daughter a week and a half later after her husband had died. Listen to what Sarah, the wife, says to her daughter. She says, my very dear child... What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Seven months later, when Sarah was on her way to visit some of her children, she got sick. She was traveling, and she stopped at the home of some friends, and seven months after her husband died, she died. The age of 49 years old. That's the story Now let me give you the lessons. What can we learn from Sarah and Jonathan Edwards? Three things I wanna propose to you as we think about what Paul says about imitating those who imitate Christ. Number one, we can learn from Jonathan's commitment to live for Christ no matter what. We can learn from Jonathan's commitment to live for Christ no matter what. Jonathan Edwards went through many trials and tribulations. And yet he never wavered. He never wavered. He was not distracted or discouraged no matter the cost or inconvenience. Now let me be clear, lest you misunderstand what I'm trying to describe as Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is not some like happy guy all the time. Sometimes we think of a people who live courageous lives or people who are just like resilient and like always happy. And if that's not your own emotional disposition, you can feel like maybe I could never live like this. Friends, that did not describe Jonathan Edwards all the time. John Edwards at times was very pensive and thoughtful. In fact, at times, uh, when he would be in his study, his wife would find him just weeping over his own sin, and she'd have to leave him be. She knew when he was lost in the study to let him be and not come to dinner with the kids because of where he was at in his own walk with the Lord as he was in his own study working through these texts himself. But even in the midst of everything he went through, he believed it was all worth it to live for Christ no matter the cost. We need more of this today in our lives. I mean, let me ask you a question. When when Paul talks about having courage, when he says, as we've learned in Ephesians chapter 6, to be strong in the armor of the Lord, when he says in Colossians chapter 1 that he is laboring and striving by this power of the Spirit that works mightily within him, friends, does that motivate you or does that just discourage you? I think the challenge can be sometimes for us today is that we have grown soft. We are children of our generation, a sign of our times. We are a therapeutic people. What does that mean? That means our feelings direct our lives. Our feelings guide us, inform us, and they decide for us. And this is often a mistake. Too often as a pastor, I encounter people who encounter difficulty in life. You know, hard day. Long day, you know, some physical discomfort. And they use that as an excuse by which they should not be held responsible to community, to accountability, to living for the Lord, maybe something as basic as reading their own Bibles, to speaking up at work in their workplace and environment, on their campus with their classmates. This is a mistake. Mistake because what it ends up doing is it creates a continual, perpetual, cowardly response to the trials and difficulties that Jesus promised us we would have as his disciples. Jonathan never used busyness as his ne- as his reason to neglect his responsibilities. He was known in a kind of a bizarre explanation. He believed that because Christ was risen from the grave early that he believed as a life practice, you should rise up early in the morning as you start your day. It'd be kind of rough if that was your dad. So what he would do is he would wake his kids up with his wife in the morning early, and by candlelight, they would get a Bible out, and he would read the Bible to them. And they would talk about it together. So like morning devos on steroids. Now this is a man who has been already in the study the previous day for 13 hours, and yet would keep going again and again and again. He never used ministry outside of his home to neglect ministry inside of his home. And what's so remarkable is all the hospitality that they would do as a couple, the people that would live with him, the pastors that would be trained by him. He believed that he needed to take care of his body so he could serve the Lord longer and better. As a result of this, he watched closely his diet and would plan to do so as some sort of physical labor. So every day he would try to do at least some type of 30 minutes of labor. Now, for those of us today, that means like we go for a walk, right? We like, you know, maybe lift some weights. We go to the gym or something. For him, their version of like 24-hour fitness uh, was cutting wood, uh, fixing fences, inspecting the sheep. Otherwise, his wife would have to shear to make the clothes from that's how he got his physical labor. Now, contrast that from how you and I often think about physical labor. Do we think about physical labor? Do we think about our exercise? we think about our diet? Because we, if we want to be able to live longer lives to serve the Lord more, or do we want to just be able to have physical bodies so we can enjoy more recreation for our own long, prolonged desire, for our own personal leisure, pleasure and leisure and entertainment? In other words, Jonathan thought, everything in my life is from the Lord for the Lord. He gives me sight. I want to see what the Lord wants me to see. He gives me mental capacity. He gives me physical capacity. I want to use that for the Lord. I want to live for the Lord. He made a point to spend time with his children every day, even in times in his study. A second lesson we can learn from them is, number two, we can learn from Sarah's diligence and discipline in her life and love for others. As mentioned earlier, she was in charge of a lot. This was not a time when you had technological conveniences such as washing machines and dishwashers or well stocked Publix grocery stores or Winn Dixie's. She would carry the water to the house. She'd bring in the firewood. She would cook and pack lunches for the visiting travelers. She would make the family's clothing. She would grow produce. She would do laundry. She would take care of the sick kids, feed the babies feed the chickens so they didn't have to butcher the chickens later, and then follow up with the children's schoolwork. You can imagine a woman like this would be just on edge. Like, you know, the old Calgon commercials, take her away. The old sort of like, let's give her a break. And you can imagine her parenting might reflect that, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to one pastor's report who was staying at their house, who lived in their home for a number of months, said the following about her. Quote, She had an excellent way of governing her children. She knew how to make them regard and obey her cheerfully, without angry words, much less heavy blows. She seldom punished them, and in speaking to them, used gentle and pleasant words. She had need to speak but once. She was cheerfully obeyed, murmuring and answering again were not among them. That's a woman we wish were a book on parenting. Sarah Edwards reminds us of the words of Titus chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and following. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine Teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Third and last, lesson we can learn from them. What do we want to see? We want to we can learn from Jonathan and Sarah that God is the most satisfying thing in existence. And that we are most happy when we are happy in God. We're happy in Him. What made Jonathan Edwards get up every morning and serve the Lord all day long? To go to bed and wake up and do it all over again was his constant love for the Lord. He was in love with God and believed that loving God for who God was not only honored God but also was Jonathan's greatest good. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards writes himself. Now, I'll read this slowly because I want you to track with me in this. I think we've been having these quotes for you. Because God infinitely values his own glory, consisting in the knowledge of himself, love to himself, joy in himself, he therefore valued the image, communication or participation of these in the creature. God delights in himself, he delights in God, man is made in his image. It is because he values himself that he delights in the knowledge and love and joy of the creature, as being himself the object of this knowledge, love, and complacence. Thus, God's respect to the creature's good and in respect to himself is not a divided respect. But both are united on one as the happiness of the creatures aimed at, is happiness in union with himself. Now, let me decode everything being said there. He's saying, listen, it doesn't get any better for God than himself. God is the greatest. God in his wisdom has delightedly made man in God's image. And he understands that caring for man and regarding himself are not opposite of one another, but they're actually related to one another that man is finding his most greatest purpose and delight in God because God is that source. So, Is God calling us to live our lives in the footsteps of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards? The answer is yes. He does not want us to be lazy. He wants us to be hospitable. He wants us to love the roles and responsibilities He's given to us, whether we're single or married, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, Neighbors and citizens in our society. He wants us to be witnesses for Him wherever we are doing it. But most importantly, what God wants of us is to see in God who He is as revealed in His Son and in the Scriptures and to find joy in that God. May I remind you what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 8? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their face. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So now at that boomerang coming back to us tonight here into the scriptures, let me ask you, as Paul is calling for imitation as Jonathan and Sir Edwards imitated others and are living lives, having lived lives worth imitating, whose life are you imitating? I am concerned that Christians know more pertinent facts about the people of this world that have no bearing on your life, no worldview-shaping influence on you, and do not share the same ideology and philosophy of what drives you, but nevertheless, you get caught up in this sort of pop culture that we're called to be a part of and instead look at that and kind of see it for what it is of no interest and no value to you. I'm not saying you have to act like it doesn't exist. I'm not saying you have to kind of be proud of your ignorance. What I'm saying is you would be greater to be delighting in the widowed woman. You'd be greater to be delighting in the unknown Christian, young as they might be, than some seemingly well-known popular person and when they're dropping a new album. Who cares? We want to find people's lives that represent the pages of Scripture. They're worth imitating and emulating. And this is exactly what Paul says. Coming to the end of his own life in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says to his own disciple, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So let me ask you a question. Apart from just being educated tonight in the life of Jonathan Sarah Edwards, apart from maybe being inspired, some of you, maybe discourage others of you, my question is where do you go from here? What do you do with this?